And so uh, the last time I preached, you guys might remember, uh, we went through Second uh, Peter 1 through 7. And we're going to go over that same section, but we're going to focus more on verses 5 through 7. Verses 5 through 7 of Second Peter. And the title of this sermon is Diligent Faith. Diligent Faith. And the last time we talked about the gifts of God and how he supplied everything, every, everything pertaining to life and godliness, and that he has given us his very precious promises, and that in response, in our faith, we are to supply diligent faith, diligent faith, things like... uh, Knowledge, self-control, godliness. And so we're going to go over those things today. And so Peter wrote this letter. Uh, Peter was a fisherman. We all know about Peter, the man who fell through the water when he saw Christ walking on water. The one who denied Christ three times. The one who ate with uh, the, the Gentiles until the Jews showed up, and then he decided that he didn't know them, that Peter. It's interesting to see Peter in his early stages, and then now here he is, and he writes this letter, a much more mature Peter. <laughs> and so he's a fisherman from Bethsaida. He's an apostle. Um, Jesus told him that he would make him fishers of men. So here we have a man who's a natural fisherman. He says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And that's in Matthew 4.19. His task as an apostle was to tell the good news of Christ and to teach the good news, to teach all that Christ had taught him. In Matthew 28, let's go there really quick. We all need to know this as Christians. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Because what we're going to see here is that Peter is fulfilling his role as an apostle. Matthew 28, 18. And it says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples, that's learners, of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Peter's task as an apostle, a messenger, was to go out and teach all that Christ had commanded him. He did see the risen Christ. He saw his divine nature. He saw him transfigured. He saw his glory on the mount in Matthew 17. He saw the risen Christ when he and the other disciples went fishing and the risen Christ showed up on the beach. What would you think if Christ showed up on the beach while you were fishing? And he saw the risen Christ and his response was that he was so excited that he jumped into the water. The boat was so full of fish, they couldn't even barely drag the boat in. And when he saw the risen Christ, he jumped in the water. He was so excited to meet the Lord. This is the Peter that we're talking about. His experience with Christ was one that was close. He experienced Christ's majesty and glory. But he also experienced Christ personally. So when Peter talks about the majesty and the glory of God, he experienced it firsthand. He was an apostle. He was a disciple of Christ. And who is this letter in 2 Peter written to, this epistle? Well, it was written to those who received the faith as the same kind as ours, it says in verse 1. They were believers. They were believers. They were the same people in the first epistle. If you flip over to 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. These are believers scattered throughout Asia Minor who are chosen. Why are they scattered, you might say? What could be that when Nero burned down Rome and he blamed the Christians, that there was a scattering going on. This could be that very same scattering in A.D. 64. So we're talking about persecuted Christians that were scattered throughout Asia Minor. Now back to Second Peter. And why was he writing this epistle? It was for encouragement. The first epistle he wrote because they were going through persecution, physical persecution, because of being Christians. And now they're going through persecution from the inside. Religious persecution, you may say, from the false teachers. They were being attacked from the false teachers from the inside. The false teachers were presenting deception into uh, the group. They were enticing believers to turn away from what they know to be true. They were perverting the truth, the standard. And these false teachers were coming in in Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 12, it says, <clears throat> Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. He's about to die. As also our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me, and I, also, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. And then down in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, we see some of the deception and enticing. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. He's not talking about the outside here. They're among the the people here. Who will secretly, secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. So many will follow after these false teachers. Many. And, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So here's the false teachers. This is why Peter is writing this epistle, to thwart to go against the false teachers. And they were in the church. They were in the church. And so they were deceptive. They were sneaky. They were enticing. They weren't right in your face saying, there is no Christ. They were enticing, deceptive. And so the outline of Peter goes like this. In uh, chapter, uh, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 1, verse uh, through 1, Chapter 1, verse 1 through 15, we talk about the Christian unity with Christ. And in chapter 1, verse 16 through chapter 2, verse 22, it's a contrast between the true teachers and the false teachers. And then in chapter 3, verse 1 through 18, he's encouraging for the future uh, glory in heaven. So in this current section falls in between chapter 1, verse 1 through 15, and that's verse 5 through 7. And in this current section, it involves the fruit of those who have unity with Christ. The fruit of those who have unity with Christ. In the previous section, we talked about God's divine power and how it's granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And that those who believe will become partakers of the divine nature all of which allows the believer to do what? Produce fruit. And so Peter's talking to these believers scattered throughout Asia Minor who are being attacked, physically persecuted, and now in false doctrine. And the defense to that is to remember 
that the divine nature has been granted to all of us through the promises. That's the defense. So in the first section, leading up to verse 5, there's a concentration on what God has done for the believer. And then beginning at verse 5, there's a shift to what the believer can do in response to God. Because God himself has supplied everything. It's his divine power in the first section. His knowledge, his glory, his excellence. He granted it, his promises. And then after chapter 5 or verse 5, it's talking about your, in your faith, supply these following things. In your faith. What the believer must supply. So let's read verses 5 through 7. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we ask that you can be with us today as we learn your word and we act it out in our very lives. And we pray that this knowledge will not puff us up, but instead it will be practical and that we can do something about it, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. So there's a shift in verse 5. And Peter says, Now, for this very reason also. Now, for this very reason also. For what reason? Well, we just talked about. For the reason that we have uh, divine power, that God has granted to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. The fact that we have the divine nature that has been given to us. Because of these things, now what is the question? Now what? Well, he says, now for this very reason also. Now, this is going to introduce a chain of events. And it's going to be linked together with the word and. He's going to say one thing, and he's going to say and, 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 until we get to the end. And so, this message is to everyone who has faith. Since we have everything pertaining to life and godliness, and since we have the promises, the magnificent promises, the divine nature, since we have those things, and since we have faith, because of that, we should diligently supply the following things. Because of all those things that God has given us, because of what he supplied to us, in return, we are to diligently supply the following things. And you notice that I said diligently, because in verse 5 it says, for this reason also, applying all diligence. So while applying diligence in your faith, supply the following. So he's saying this should be something that you're highly concerned about. It's very important. And so two observations we should see here. Number one, there's an expectation to respond diligently. Not just to respond, but to respond diligently. Respond to what? The gifts of God's grace, the promises, the divine nature. The second observation, what is behind that response? What is the power that gives us that response? Because no one seeks after God on their own, right? What is the power behind that response? It comes from the Holy Spirit. Those are two things we should observe here. That we should respond diligently, and that diligent response comes from the Holy Spirit. So, applying all diligence. What does that mean? When it says applying, it means to come alongside, to bear alongside, to contribute besides something else. To bring with, to do your part, to supplement with diligence, with speed, with haste, with earnesty, earnestly striving after something, labor, a zeal, seriousness. So applying diligence, we should do those following things. And in Second Peter chapter 1, 
verse 10, it says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. He says to be diligent. He doesn't just say strive after these things. With diligence, with zeal. When you wake up in the morning with zeal, go after these following things. It's a passionate thing that you do. But it is from the work of the Spirit. And what is he saying here in general? He's saying to supplement, to add to diligently. Add to what? Your faith. Your faith. It says, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply. Supply the following. We know what faith is. It's assurance of uh, it's conviction of the truth, it's trust and belief in the gospel truth, the message that Christ Jesus is the only way to heaven. He is the only salvation. He is the only way. It's exclusive. It's not inclusive of other gods. It's the foundation of the following steps. If we don't have faith, if you're not a believer, the following steps will make no sense to you. If you try to do the following steps without faith, It's legalism. It's only by faith can you do the following things and apply them diligently. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, you guys know this. It says, faith is the thing, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Assurance, conviction, things not seen, things hoped for. It's a hope of something that we know for sure is going to happen. That's what faith is. So what is he saying all together with this phrase when he says, now for this very reason also applying all diligence in your faith supply? He's saying supplement your faith. Add to your faith. If you have an ESV, it says add to your faith. Supplement your faith. Supplement your faith, the following things. Well, when it says supply, supply. What is he talking about here? Is he just talking about to give something? Well, it's a little deeper than that. The word supply is a combination word, epichorigo, and the corigo comes from chorus. And what happened was during that time, the chorus leader, you know, if you had a choir, the chorus leader would provide every single instrument or tool that the choir would need, the chorus would need. Every single instrument. All at the leader's expense. Now, that would be spendy uh, if you had to do that today. And so when it says supply, it means supply everything, a full supply at your expense. And in verse 11, it says, For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. In what way? in supplying the things we're about to go over. If you supply those things, those imperatives, the kingdom of heaven will be abundantly supplied to you in return. That's the supply, full, a full supplementation, a full supply. Supply what? And now we're going to get into the things that we need to do in return. What is it that we need to supplement our faith with? Supplement our faith. Remember, this is not salvation by works. We're not talking about go out and do these things to earn your way to heaven. These are things that come alongside faith. If you do not have faith, these other things do not count. And if you don't have faith, I encourage you to have faith, to believe in Jesus Christ, the only salvation for your sins. He died on the cross for you. He's been resurrected. He is king. And because of his resurrection, you too may have eternal life. If you already are saved, do these things. Supply these things. It says in verse 5, applying all diligence in your faith, supply the number one thing, moral excellence. Moral excellence. I love the word excellence. I love the word diligence. It is has the idea behind it, strong work, a heavy desire to do something. 
Quality, not quantity. Quality. Moral excellence. Well, we know in verse 3 it says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So we see that God called us by his own excellence. It's God that possesses excellence first. And he's given us the ability to respond in excellence by the work of the Spirit. So we are commanded to supply this excellence that he has given to us. What is this moral excellence? Well, behind it, it's talking about virtue, moral goodness. But it's also talking about exercising a vigor, a, a valor, valiantly, vigorously seeking to do God's will. Valiantly, vigorously. Listen at these words, guys. Valiance, vigorously, diligently. These are all words that have a foundation behind it to go after something with seriousness, with intent. Not just sitting back saying, hey, I'm a Christian now, I'm good to go. Vigorously, valiantly seeking to obey God's will. When you wake up in the morning, is that what you seek to do? Like obedient soldiers. Many of you are, are or have served in the military, and you know what it's like to raise your hand and take the oath. I did. And it takes a valiant, a diligent effort to do well in the military. Diligently, vigorously, valiantly, with valor, like soldiers. And so in 1 Corinthians, let's go there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we see this moral excellence, this valiancy, this vigorous uh, effort to obey God's will in the likes of Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, go down to verse 23. And this is Paul. And he says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. All things, not some things. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? They all run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. That's moral excellence. He's striving to obey God's will. Why? Because of the Spirit. He's diligently, diligently striving to obey God's will because of the Spirit. That's the key, guys, because of the Spirit. And then we see in 2 Timothy, Paul, again, talks to Timothy in this letter. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, And he says, verse 3, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, listen, just pay attention to this diligence, this valor, this, uh, his vigorous effort. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, He does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you an understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, 
for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not in prison. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. So that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is moral excellence. He's striving after Christ. His goal is not worldly. He's valiant. He's, he has a vigorous attempt at following after Christ. This is moral excellence. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, it says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Moral excellence. He's like a soldier. He's obedient to God's word because of the spirit within him. And then we have an example in Christ himself. In John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, we have an example of Christ himself, the best example. In John 6:38 it says John 6:38 says for I have come down from heaven for what reason? Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That is the perfect example of moral excellence. The perfect example And he went to the cross with valiancy, vigorously. Now back to 2 Peter. I know you guys like flipping pages. But it's not my word, it's his word, right? Back to verse 5. And in your moral excellence, supply what? Knowledge. Remember, diligently supply. Diligently supply. So, knowledge is the next thing. Remember I said they're joined together with the word and? With the word and? And so, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. It's an addition to. Add this to your faith. Knowledge. It's knowing God. Gnosis is the Greek word. It's knowing the difference between right and wrong. How do you know God? By going to see a psychic? By having visions and dreams? No, we know God from the scripture. It's knowing God is knowing the difference between right and wrong, good and bad. This was important in this epistle because these believers were facing false teaching. Without knowledge, they would fall into the hole. They would be deceived. They would be enticed without knowledge. It's knowing God. What do we know about God? The truth, the, the truth from false, falseness. The false teachers claimed to have knowledge, but they had no knowledge. In chapter 2, of 2 Peter, verse 2 through 3. 2 Peter 2, 2 through 3. It says, many will follow their sensuality, the false teachers. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Maligned has the idea like it'll be defamed. It'll be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. False words. The truth will be maligned. This is not from the outside. This is from the inside. We need to be sharp. In verse 12 and 13 of the same chapter, but these, these false teachers, like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge. They're reviling where they have no knowledge. 
they will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They're bold about it. Their stains and blemishes reviling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. So they're amongst the believers. They're carousing with the believers, hanging out, having a good time, having a cup of coffee. But they're deceptive. They're enticing. How do you defend against that? With knowledge. Knowledge. They exploit with their false words. And so when we talk about knowledge, that word is similar to what we read in verse 2 and 3. In verse 2 and 3, we have the same word, but a fuller sense of that same word. It's a deeper knowledge in verse 2 and 3. It says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. That's a deeper knowledge, a more intimate, a precise knowledge, correct and full. That's the knowledge that's necessary for salvation. And what's the reason for this epistle? In chapter 2, verse, or I'm sorry, chapter 3 of 2 Peter, it also mentions knowledge in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, verse 1 and 2. Here's this knowledge again. We see it in a different way. It says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken. Remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. We're talking about scripture here. We get knowledge from scripture. So what, what, what must we diligently aspire to do? Supply knowledge. Supply knowledge. And the knowledge saves those people during that time from the false doctrine. But we have false doctrine today, don't we? Well, in the Old Testament, we have a perfect example of false teachers and good teachers. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, we see a a good way to know the difference between a good teacher and a false teacher. In this sense, it's the prophet. The prophet gave the people knowledge, God's word that we just talked about, right? Deuteronomy 18.20, it says, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So if they speak a word that God did not command them to speak, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? How do you know the difference? Well, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. God didn't say anything false. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You should not be afraid of him. Truth versus false. Truth versus false. Well, what's the next thing in 2 Peter? Self-control in verse 6. Self-control. Once again, it's joined together with the word and. Self-control. What is self-control? It's the practice of mastering. Mastering. I love these words. I love these words. Valiancy. Mastering. Mastering what? Your desires, your passions. Why is that a big thing to these people? Because the false teachers were enticing. They were enticing the people. And so in the self-control, we have to master our passions and desires. Self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, so on and so forth. Self-control. We have to master our passions and desires. There's no such thing as let go, let God. No, you must master because he's given you the spirit. Is not the spirit powerful? (laughs) Is the spirit weak? No way. God has given you the spirit to master. We're conquerors, right? We're conquerors through Christ Jesus. 
We can master these things. With power, using discipline, restraint, holding back from things we shouldn't do. We have to master our passions and desires. Resisting the false teachers. Resisting the false teachers. Have self-control. If they're enticing, you have to have self-control to resist the false teachers. To resist anything. Self-control. How do you stay in line? Well, anything outside of line is losing self-control. How do you stay in line? You have to know what's in line through the scripture. Well, what were the false teachers trying to get them to lose their self-control over? Well, chapter 2, verse 2 says, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. We talked about that. Sensuality, sexual thoughts, pushing you down a way that uh, is sensual. How about uh, verse 14 in the same chapter? We have that word enticement. Having eyes full of adultery. Their eyes are full of adultery. That never cease from sin. Never. Their eyes never cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls. Enticing unstable souls. But if you're stable, if you have self-control, you cannot be enticed. You can resist. Having a heart trained in greed, they're accursed children. Verse 18. These are serious spiritual attacks here. Verse 18. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires. By fleshly desires. By sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. They're enticing. They're tricky. There's a certain nastiness about it. So what must we do? We must exercise self-control. One great example is Joseph. You guys know the story of Joseph. He got sold by his brothers to Egypt. It's the whole reason that the Israelites end up in Egypt. And when he gets there, you'd think he'd be a slave because he was a slave originally. And when he gets there, he's brought up as a leader in the Egyptian um, nation. And in Genesis chapter 39, uh, verse 7, and I'll go there, it talks about this, and it's interesting to see uh, his self-control. Genesis 39, 7 says, It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and, he's, and she said, Lie with me. So here he is. He's risen up in the ranks from a slave to a high-ranking person working at Potiphar's house. So here's Potiphar's wife trying to entice Joseph into something sensual, just like the false teacher in Peter's day. He's trying to entice them. And in verse 10 and through 12, it says, as she spoke to Joseph, here's Potiphar's wife. So he's there. He's working there all the time. She's trying to entice him. As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work. And none of the men of the household was there inside. So there he is all alone with this woman who's enticing him. Right? Here comes self-control. Sometimes you might think to stay away from sexual sin, you just stay away from the sexual person of the opposite sex. You can't walk around with blinders on like a horse. That's not realistic here. He was there. He kept doing his duty. It says, uh, when she saw that he had left his, uh, I'm sorry, she caught him, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. She's grabbing at him. Physically, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. He got out of there. He wasn't playing around, was he, guys? He wasn't saying, you know what? I don't know if this is a good idea. No way. He was out of there. He didn't play around. That's self-control, isn't it? That's self-control. And then that's a good example of self-control. Joseph uh, with Potiphar's wife. But there's a bad example. You know, Scripture, the Old Testament, is there for us to learn, right? So there's a good example. But here's a bad example. 
David. You probably knew I was going to say that, right? David is a bad example. In 1 Samuel, verse 25, 1 Samuel 25, here's a bad example of self-control. I said verse 25, I'm sorry, chapter 25. Put on to verse 42. Well, first of all, we see that David had three wives. (laughs) It's amazing to me. Then Abigail quickly arose and rode on a donkey with her five maidens who attended her, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. There you go. David had also taken Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they became his wives. <laughs> now Saul had given Micah, his daughter, David's wife, to Paddock, to uh, Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galem. So he has three wives already, right? Isn't that enough? Wow, he already had three wives. And look what he does after this. And 2 Samuel, we already know what's coming here, guys. 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is a bad example. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Then it happened in the spring at the time when the kings go out to battle. That what? David went out valiantly with them? No. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. He didn't valiantly go out to battle. And remember, David had already been going out to battle valiantly, but here he did not. When he gets up from his house, we know the whole story. He sees uh, Bathsheba, and what does he do? He sleeps with her. But the, that's one thing. And then what does he do to try to cover it up? He tries to have Uriah come back. Her husband, she was married, he tries to have Uriah come back and set him up as if it was his baby. It's almost like stuff you see on TV today, right? It's Uriah's baby, not mine. So he tried to have Uriah come back from battle to be with his wife so that he could blame it on Uriah himself. Say, huh, you must, you and your wife have a baby. Uriah wouldn't sleep with his wife. And so what does David do? He has the guy killed. Murder. Wow. He went from one sexual look on the balcony of his castle, whatever. He's up there, and he's standing up there, and he has one sexual look. It goes from one sexual look to actually having sex with her, fully committing adultery. He already has three wives. And then he goes out to commit murder to cover it up. First, he tries to deceive the guy. Can you imagine if he came back and actually thought it was his child? And then he murders him. He lost total control, no self-control whatsoever. So you have a good example and a bad example. Back to 2 Peter. The next word is perseverance. In in verse 6, perseverance. What's perseverance? It's the same word as endurance. But it means to cheerfully, gladly endure with hope and joy. It's a person who's focused on a purpose. They're enduring because they're focused on an end goal, a purpose. It's the Christian who's faced with trials and suffering, but they continue to focus on the path ahead because they're focused on God's will. And so Peter encouraged these believers to focus on their position in Christ and his kingdom rather than being despondent or sad or depressed as a result of the false teacher's attacks. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, it says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men, and fall from your own steadfastness. Steadfastness. He says, don't fall from that. Don't fall from your own steadfastness. Stay focused. Stay the course. Well, the false teachers couldn't preserve. They couldn't persevere. They couldn't keep on the path because they weren't even on the path. (laughs) They were apostate. They weren't even on the path. Why were they not on the path? Well, let's go to 
verse, chapter 2, verse 19, it says that promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. The false teachers could not endure because they're enslaved to corruption. That sounds familiar in Romans. Slaves of sin. In Romans 6, Romans 6, 16, Romans 6, 16. It says, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one who you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. The false teachers could not endure. That's why they're apostate. They're falling away because they never were saved. They're slaves of corruption. They're slaves of sin. But the believers will persevere because they're slaves of righteousness. Their master is Christ. The believers will persevere because they have a new birth, a divine nature that we talked about in verses 1 through 5. They believe in the promises. The believer has a desire to obey because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, which is given at the moment of the new birth. New creatures in Christ. New creatures. And so we should diligently supply perseverance. Be diligent about being steadfast, immovable. Be diligent about this. Remember the promises. Remember that you are a born-again creature in Christ. You have unity with Christ. Well, what's the next thing in Second Peter? Godliness. Godliness. We're talking about holiness here. Holiness. Now, sometimes when people hear holiness, and as applied to human beings, we think, man, I, I'm not holy. Only God is holy. Well, you're right. Absolutely. But guess what? The Holy One, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. So holiness, it's loyalty to God in your actions. Be loyal to God in your actions. It's piety. It's reverence. It's the fear of God. Devoutness, being separated from the world. The word saint means to be separated, to be drawn out from, set aside. God's calling you to be different than the rest of the world. That's what sanctification is. Growing in your maturity in Christ. Don't be like everybody else. Strive to be like Christ, as it says in Ephesians. Strive to be like Christ. Live in conformity of his word that's revealed in scripture. Godliness. 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's go there. 1 Peter chapter 1. And when you hear this, listen at the importance of it. This isn't a let go, let God. This is not that. This isn't, hey, you might want to think about being a better person. (laughs) Strive diligently after these things. Verse 14. As obedient children. So like children. What do children do? They do everything their parents do. They follow you. They do what what you do. Even though you might say the opposite thing, they do what you do. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in ignorance. Don't be conformed. Don't fit the mold of your old self. But like the Holy One who called you, 
Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. You notice he didn't say some of your behavior? In all your behavior. These all, these words like this are important. It blows my mind. Be holy in all your behavior? That's not a let go, let God. (laughs) In all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. (laughs) How can he say that? We're broken sinners. But God, while we were still yet sinners, what? He saved us, didn't he? While we were still, or we were good people? <laughs> no. Right? He's given us the Spirit. That's a quote from Leviticus 11. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. There's that word excellent again. Excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That calling makes you a saint, the sanctification. He set you aside. He called you out of darkness. You're not your old self anymore. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. This is your new life. The death of Jesus gave us imputed righteousness. It justified us. We're no longer guilty before God because of the death of Christ. But his resurrection gave us a new life, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're new people. That means we don't do the same stuff anymore. Don't go around saying, I can't help it. We're new people. Unless you're saying God is weak. He's not weak. This should bring us to holy living, godliness. The pilgrims, the Puritans, they always sought after piety, godliness, and holy living. You want to do what's right because you're indwelt by the Spirit. Like I said before, if you're trying to do the things I'm saying without the Spirit, it's worthless because that's legalism. Here's another example. I love the examples of the Old Testament. Are we not supposed to look at the Old Testament for examples? I love the Old Testament examples. And Daniel, let's go to Daniel. And we're going to explore this here. Daniel chapter 6. And down at verse 3, now you know Daniel was taken away to Babylon as a prisoner um, from Israel. His whole, the whole Israelite people were taken there. And here he was, he was one of the few chosen men to work in the government of Babylon. And so um, he was put in charge of all the mm, holy men, I guess you could say. And then it says in verse 3, Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the uh, commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Wow. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. There's another strong word there. He had an extraordinary spirit. And down in verse 4, then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel. They're trying to get him in trouble in regard to government affairs. But they could not, they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. They couldn't find anything wrong with the guy. They're trying to get him in trouble. But they couldn't find anything wrong with him. But then they noticed his devotion his zeal for the Lord. They noticed it. They saw it. Do people see our zeal and our devotion for the Lord? They sure noticed it about Daniel in verse 5. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. (laughs) They knew he was devoted to God. They saw it. Verse 10. 
then they told uh, the leader that, uh, you know, we should set up a system so that if anybody disobeys you, uh, they'll be punished. And so they, they were setting him up and that he couldn't pray. So then what happens? Does he decide, you know what, I'm going to follow the rules. I'm going to not have my godliness. I'm not going to have piety. I'm not going to vigorously pursue God's will. No, he doesn't say that. And instead, he actually does vigorously pursue God's will. And he says, it says, now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. He never stopped. He never stopped. That's an example, a great example of godliness, of piety, searching after, vigorously searching after, diligently supplying godliness. He continued to pray and give thanks. And today we can think about that uh, with what we're facing in the government today. Should you get a shot? Should you not get a shot? Should you do this? Should you not do that? I'm not here to tell you whether, what you should do or not, but vigorously pursuing godliness is even harder today when you go about and someone says you are a, a bigot or a racist or a whatever because you don't agree with homosexuality or something like that. Do you still, are you still steadfast with your godliness? Do you uh, want to obey God's will or the will of man? Which one? Choose. <laughs> the next one in Second Peter is brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness. And the last two uh, imperative things to supply involve love. And so we have here brotherly kindness. And remember, Peter was this fisherman. He was so excited about Christ when he showed up on that beach, he just jumped in the water. You can see his love for Christ. He, wanted, he says, if that's you, let me walk out there when Christ walked on the water. But at the same time, he denied Christ three times. But he certainly had a zeal for Christ. He was excited about God. And so when he spoke of this love, he knew what he was talking about. And the first love he mentions is brotherly kindness in verse 7. And that's talking about the love for each other, the love of the brethren. This is a love that, this is phileo, where the word Philadelphia comes from. And so we have brotherly love, you know, the city of brotherly love. But this is the real brotherly love. This is the real deal. This is uh, the love that, the close friendship that we can have for one another in the church. This is a... Uh, it also can speak of the love between two fraternal brothers, um, the love of the brethren, the close friendship, a warm affection, acts of kindness, members of the same nation. We think of the, being an American, we say, hey, I'm an American. I love my fellow Americans, right? The love of the brethren. This is, like a, this is what this word is talking about here. And so he's saying, supply this diligently diligently love one another. Love your brothers and sisters in the congregation here. Diligently. Seek after it diligently. Do you put yourself first or do you put them first? Which one do you do? Do you seek to come to church to get something or to give something? Brotherly love. Do you put them first or are you first? Which one do you do? But then there's love at the end. And this is agape love. This is the highest form of love. This is the only love that we see. Uh, this is the one that God gives us. This is the love from God, the, the deeper form of love, the most purest form of love. Not just, hey, are you nice to your fellow believer or someone else out in the world? This is a deep love. This is the love that comes from God. It's an expression of his being. God is love. As a believer, before we were believers, we couldn't even express this kind of love before. But now, because of the Spirit, we can express this kind of love. We couldn't before because we have the fallen nature, but now we're enabled by the Spirit. This is talking about caring for the, the welfare of others extremely high above ourselves. 
the characteristic of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We know that very famous section. Let's turn there. 1 Corinthians 13. This is a familiar passage. So, the description of love. Love is a better word to describe than to define. It, re, it, it, re, it revolves around action. And so, in verse 4, we see a list of things that represent what love actually is. And when you hear these things, you should ask yourself, am I diligently supplying these things? Diligently. Verse 4. Thirteen four, love is patient. Love is kind and does and is not jealous. Are you patient? Truly patient? Are you truly kind? Are you not jealous? I'm smiling because I have to talk to myself in this. And if we're really honest, none of us reaches this even closely. Right? Wow. Patient. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Are you thinking about what people did to you? Hey. This person did this to me, or this happened to me. Or we can think of it as Christians in the United States. What kind of country, man? We got this president. What's going on here? <laughs> are you thinking about the wrongs done to you? Or are you seeking to do well to others? Are you seeking to give the gospel to others rather than to slam them? We should seek to give them the gospel. If we think the whole world's messed up, shouldn't we give the gospel? Or are we just going to try to change who the president is? Verse 6, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Do we do that? Ask yourself, do I truly love? Do I truly, diligently Supply love, truly. And if you don't, start doing it. (laughs) And if you do it kind of lackadaisical, do it more diligently. Have a fervency. Be more serious about it. And in John chapter 15, chapter 15, Verse 12, and this is a commandment. This is my commandment from Christ here, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So what's the perfect example that we have of love? Christ. And he says, love one another in the same way that I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. What's interesting is the word love is the agape love, and the word friend friends is the phileo love, that Philadelphia, that brotherly love. So that agape love is that trumping overall love that leads you to love your brothers and sisters. It leads back to loving one another. You can't truly love one another unless you have that agape love. From God. And so it's sacrificial love. God has called us to love sacrificially, to give ourselves up for the sake of others. The example we follow is Christ Himself. On the cross, He gave Himself for us so that we may have eternal life in return. That's true love. And here is the conclusion. Here's my question. Are you diligently adding to your faith? Are you diligently 
adding to your faith? Are you diligently adding moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love? Are you doing those things diligently? If you are, increase even more so. Do it more. (laughs) If not, start doing it. And if you don't have any faith at all, which is the foundation of all these things, then I say to you, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Because if you have no faith, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. That's a strong word. Dead in your trespasses and sins. You will have no eternal life. You're separated from Christ eternally. True faith is repentance that turns to Christ and follows Christ. That's true faith. Turn away from your sins and towards Christ and follow him each step of your day. When you wake up in the morning to the time you go to bed, follow Christ diligently. That's true faith. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in everything he says. So, once again, if you are diligently adding to your faith, Increase it. If not, start. And if you don't have faith at all, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you have supplied everything pertaining to life and godliness. And that you have given us your divine nature. Your Holy Spirit, Lord, indwells us and leads us that we can do works prepared beforehand, good works prepared beforehand, Lord. And we just pray that everything we learn here today, that we can act upon it and love one another and not to be proud. In Christ's name, amen.